A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to A History of Europe. Key Battles, The Battle of Hattin, Part 2 of 4. In the year 1099, the Christian warriors of the First Crusade captured the holy city of Jerusalem. Then, in the following years, those who remained in the region succeeded in carving out four crusader states. On reflection, the establishment and endurance of these states was a remarkable achievement. In the south was the Kingdom of Jerusalem, whose territory stretched in the south from the port of Akabar on the Red Sea and along the coast of the southern Levant. On its northern border was the county of Tripoli, although a separate county always closely associated with the Kingdom of Jerusalem. Along the coast were situated several excellent ports, which would help bring in European settlers, pilgrims and merchants. The region to the east, beyond the River Jordan, called Transjordan, had a mixed geography. The land here was dotted with settlements, with areas of stock-raising and cereal production, amidst oases. And the further east you went, areas of desert inhabited by Bedouin nomads. Over 300 miles to the north from Jerusalem was Antioch. This city lay in the Amuk Plain, which is watered in part by the river Orontes, which stretches deep into Syria. It is one of the most fertile areas of the region, rich with livestock and grain, as well as benefiting from abundant timber and mining resources. The local population was mainly Eastern Christian, who on the whole willingly supported their Frankish rulers. About 160 miles east of Antioch lay the capital of the other crusader state, Edessa. The county of Edessa was in a highly strategic position, but difficult to defend. Its western areas were a mountainous region cut by the Euphrates River. Its central and southern area were grasslands that were part of the Al Jazeera, a region split today between Iraq, Syria and Turkey. Its defence relied on effective leadership and the cooperation of the local Armenian population. The Christian settlers, as a local minority population, were remarkably tolerant for the standards of the day. The first generation quickly came to terms with the largely non-Catholic population, as exemplified by the marriages of Kings Baldwin I and II with local Armenians. In the 45 years since the fall of Jerusalem, the region had attracted a number of small-scale expeditions from the west. 
some members of the Western Church and laity made sporadic attempts to imitate the First Crusade. These relatively small-scale campaigns included some of the features that would eventually become staple elements in the makeup of an official crusade. These included the active promotion by the papacy, the taking of vows, the symbol of the cross, and the belief in spiritual reward in return for military service. Outside the Middle East, Christian armies were also fighting against non-believers on two other battlefronts. In northern Spain, western knights were fighting to reconquer the Iberian Peninsula, lost to the Muslims four centuries before. Meanwhile, the Saxons and Danes were pushing the frontiers of Christian Europe into the Baltic region against the pagans. These campaigns are also sometimes described as crusades. They were supported but not instigated by the papacy and had their own dynamics. I'll go into more detail into their stories in other podcast episodes. The Church's ability to develop crusading in the Holy Land was curtailed by a papal schism that saw the appointment of a number of alternative anti-popes. In addition, there was mounting pressure on Rome from the rival powers of Imperial Germany to the north and the Norman state of Sicily and southern Italy in the south. In the meantime, Germany was wracked by internal rivalry, with two dynasties, the Hohenstaufen and the Welfs, embroiled in a bitter struggle for supremacy. At the same time, the rulers of England were also engaged in a civil war. This conflict was between supporters of Matilda, who was daughter-in-law of Folk of Anjou, King of Jerusalem, and King Stephen, son of one of the first crusaders, Stephen of Blois. This shows the strong family ties between the nobility of the crusader states and the West, France and England in particular. By the beginning of the 1140s, there were perhaps 150,000 Westerners living in Outremer, the collective name for the Crusader States. It is difficult to give precise numbers. This is partly because numbers fluctuated with the coming and going of pilgrims and merchants, but also because intermarrying blurred the lines between settlers and the local population. By the time of the Second Crusade, there could be said to be a Frankish race separate from the West. Probably the most important definition of their identity locally was that they spoke the Northern French language. In late December 1144, the city of Edessa fell to the Muslim governor of Mosul and Damascus, named Imad al-Din Jengi. In response, Pope Eugenius proclaimed what became known as the Second Crusade. His papal bull was read out aloud at public gatherings, offering remissions of sins for military service. And recruitment gathered pace thanks to the preaching of the influential abbot Bernard of Clairvaux. He worked tirelessly during 1146 and 1147, by which time both the kings of France and Germany had pledged to make the journey. 
Conrad III of Germany, born in 1093 or 1094, had previously proved himself to be a valued ally of the papacy, and also of the emperor in Constantinople. He already had good crusader credentials, having made a pilgrimage to the Holy Land in the 1120s as a young prince, where he also helped in battle. At first, though, he was reluctant to take the cross, conscious that, in his absence, political rivals such as the Welf Duke of Bavaria might move to seize power from him. King Louis VII of France was considerably younger than Conrad, having been born in 1120 and having been on the throne from 1137. The earlier part of his long reign was somewhat unstable, with the king being involved in quarrels with powerful feudal vassals, some of whom were as powerful as Louis himself. One of his greatest assets was his marriage to Eleanor of Aquitaine, which offered the prospect of Eleanor's large and powerful duchy being added to the currently small French royal domain centred around Paris. Louis was a sensitive, serious and deeply religious man, whose almost monk-like piety contrasted sharply with the high-spirited character of his wife. Both Louis and Conrad decided to answer the call to arms, the first kings to go on crusade. Their decision greatly boosted recruitment to the second crusade, both by bringing their own men and also as an inspiration to others. They also brought along more resources than had been available on previous campaigns. As with the First Crusade, the vast bulk of the 1147 expedition set out to follow the land route to the Near East, past Constantinople and across Asia Minor. Also like before, the journeys of the different contingents were staggered so as to be more easily organised by the Byzantines and to avoid exhausting local resources on the way. An important difference was that unlike his grandfather, Alexius, Emperor Manuel had no interest in summoning this new Latin expedition, and actually stood to lose power and influence now that it was in motion. When Manuel received the letter from Louis announcing the coming of the Second Crusade, he was in the middle of a siege of Konya, the capital of the Turkish Seljuk Sultanate of Rum in Central Asia Minor. It had been a highly successful campaign, which the emperor had tried to portray to the west as part of the war against Islam, in order to prove his crusading credentials. However, the news compelled Manuel to lift the siege and return to Constantinople, and so prevented him from being able to capitalise on his recent victories. The failure of the empire to subjugate the Turks when it had the chance was to have serious consequences for both Byzantines and the Crusader states in the long term. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Another downside of the crusade for Constantinople was that Conrad III's absence from Central Europe freed up Roger II of Sicily to attack Byzantine territory. Indeed, Roger's navy captured Corfu in 1147 and used the island as a base to attack Greece, sacking Athens and ravaging the coast of Corinth and Thebes. The Normans pillaged the Byzantine silk factories and carried off the local skilled weavers who were taken back to Palermo and formed the basis for the Sicilian silk industry. The necessary defence of Greece against Roger II prevented Emperor Manuel from being able to assist the Crusaders. Also, as a side note, in the decade before the Second Crusade, Roger II had expanded his authority into the African mainland. He had conquered the coast of Tunisia and the Libyan city of Tripoli. His diversions against the Byzantines, however, hindered his efforts to maintain control of territory in Africa. The Emperor Manuel's decision to return to his capital proved to be a good one. He was rightly concerned about the prospect of two vast western armies marching through the empire after the experiences of his grandfather half a century before. There was a fear that the real aim of the expedition was the conquest of Constantinople. This is the clear opinion of the Byzantine chronicler John Kinamos, especially after hearing that the troops of Louis were planning to sail on ships provided by Roger of Sicily. The German contingent, from the moment they entered Byzantine territory in August 1147, caused trouble. Rather than paying for supplies, they seized them by force. When a group of inebriated Germans near Philippopolis took exception to a display of snake charming in a tavern, they burned most of the buildings outside the city walls. Soon after, at Adrianople, when a German lying sick in a monastery was murdered by some vengeful locals, Conrad's nephew, Frederick Barbarossa, retaliated by burning the monastery down. The Germans set up camp near Constantinople. Without local knowledge, Conrad was not aware that its chosen location was between two dry riverbeds. A sudden flash flood resulted in huge losses of equipment, money and supplies, as well as some fatalities, mostly among the camp followers. This, on top of weariness and declining morale, persuaded some of the crusaders to return home before they had even left Europe. Three days later, those bedraggled German crusaders, who had decided to persevere, reached the Byzantine imperial capital. A group of them attacked the city but were beaten back by Byzantine mercenaries. Manuel clearly wanted no further difficulties, 
and ordered a full-scale effort to transport the Germans across the Bosporus into Asia as quickly as possible. A few days later, the French arrived in Constantinople. Unwisely, Conrad III decided not to wait for the French contingent and instead to set off into Central Asia Minor. From his staging post at Nicaea, he planned to take a similar route as that taken by the First Crusaders. Thanks to the earlier campaign of Emperor John II, the Byzantines had regained the land between Constantinople and the Levant. As part of their programme of reconquest, they had constructed a series of fortresses to consolidate their hold on the area and to serve a basis for future campaigns. However, these fortifications were unable to securely seal the new frontier with the Turks. Also, much of the regained territory remained severely depopulated as a result of recent fighting in the area. As a result, the route of the Germans was not as secure as they probably believed. The local Turkish leader of the time was named Masoud, the son of Kilij Arslan, who in the First Crusade had been defeated at the Battle of Dorylaeum. Masoud was determined to remove the stain of dishonour that tainted his father's memory. The tactics he used were the traditional Turkish hit-and-run attacks, charging from the hills, picking off the stragglers and cutting off supply lines. The road from Nicaea to Dorylaeum initially followed fertile river valleys, making maintenance of supplies easier. However, the region beyond Dorylaeum was arid and largely uninhabited, and Conrad's troops began to run out of supplies after about eight or ten days. Foraging was essential, but it took time and those involved were vulnerable to attack. The crusaders were hurried along the way, and after a heavy clash with Turks on the 25th of October, Conrad was persuaded to return to Dorylaeum. But the constant threat of ambush, the retreat became a rout. Conrad himself was wounded by arrows, and many of the stragglers simply fell behind to be captured. The German army limped back to Nicaea, but by now morale was very low, and yet more crusaders abandoned the expedition. Those who stayed joined the main French army under Louis, and made another attempt to reach the Levant. The Turks, buoyed by their recent successes, continued to harry the Christian army all the way. By the time the Crusaders reached Antioch in March 1148, thousands had been lost to combat, starvation and desertion. The expedition had virtually been broken before it had even reached the Holy Land. Many blamed the Byzantines, who they accused of treachery. But although Manuel had offered only limited support, it was the Latins' own incaution in the face of heightened Turkish aggression that caused the problem. The question now was whether their greatly weakened force could hope to achieve anything of substance and rekindle the crusading flame. More than three years had passed since the fall of Edessa. Its conqueror, Zengi, had initially allowed his troops to pillage and slaughter at will. After the initial wave of violence, all Latin men were butchered and the women taken into slavery. 
that the surviving Eastern Christians, Armenian and Syrian, were spared and permitted to remain in their homes. With his new possession, Zengi could hope to unite a vast area of Syrian and Mesopotamian territory from Aleppo to Mosul. Indeed, he sought to present himself as the ruler of all Islam. But on the night of 14th of September, 1146, during the siege of a Muslim fortress, he suffered a sudden ambush and was killed in his bed. Immediately attention turned to the question of succession. His eldest son, Saif al-Din, seized Mosul, as Mesopotamia was seen as the greatest prize and the centre of Sunni Islam. The younger son, Nur al-Din, assumed control of his father's Syrian lands. Nur al-Din came to power aged around 28. He was said to have been a tall, swarthy man with a beard but no moustache, a fine forehead and a pleasant appearance, enhanced by beautiful, melting eyes. Muslim chroniclers of the age generally present him as the very archetype of a perfect Islamic ruler, deeply pious, clement and just, yet valiant and skilful in battle, and committed to the war for the Holy Land. It was to be Nur al-Din who would lead the Muslim response to the Western Christian intruders. But first he needed to assert his authority over his new lands. An opportunity to do so presented itself with the news that the Count of Edessa, Jocelyn II, was making a desperate bid to recover his capital. Leading a rapidly assembled force, he marched on the city in October 1146, and with the help of the native Eastern Christian population, breached Edessa's defences by night. The Muslim garrison fled to the heavily fortified citadel. Nur al-Din acted with resolution. Mustering thousands of troops from Aleppo and Turkoman warriors, he led a forced march through day and night at an intense pace. Jocelyn immediately abandoned the city, escaping only at the cost of heavy losses. Two years earlier, Zengi had spared the local Christian population. But now, as punishment for their collusion with the Franks, Nur al-Din showed no mercy. All males were killed, women and children enslaved. The once vibrant metropolis remained a desolate backwater for centuries to come. Meanwhile, the governor of Aleppo's rival city, Damascus, was Muin Adin Anur, a Turkoman military commander. Earlier, he had resisted control from Muslim rivals including a siege by Zengi in 1139, during which he had turned to the Latins for assistance. After Zengi's death, Anur's authority was rejuvenated. With Nur al-Din struggling to assert his personal authority in northern Syria, and therefore not an immediate threat, Damascus felt less need to continue cooperation with Jerusalem. When reports arrived of a vast army arriving from the west, the local Muslim leaders, including Nur al-Din and Anur, must have become concerned. 
Then, when further news came that the invaders' strength had been greatly blunted by the Turks, both must have been greatly relieved. However, the Second Crusade, despite its problems reaching the Holy Land, was still a major armed expedition to be taken seriously. In March 1148, King Louis reached Antioch, and discussions were held as to which target to attack first. The destruction of Edessa scuppered any plans to attempt its immediate reconquest. Instead, Count Raymond of Antioch advocated a campaign targeting Aleppo and Shizar. The plan had considerable merit, offering an opportunity to strike against Nur al-Din whilst he was still consolidating his hold over northern Syria. The French king, however, rejected the proposal and instead marched south to Palestine. The reason for Louis' decision is unclear, but at the heart of the matter appeared to be rumours of an affair between Count Raymond and the king's wife, Eleanor of Aquitaine, who is also the count's niece. Whether there was any substance to the allegation is not known, but for sure the king and count were no longer on friendly terms. In June 1148, the senior leaders of the Second Crusades met up with the rulers and barons of Jerusalem in a great conference near Acre to decide the next course of action. By this time, Folk of Anjou had passed away, and the title of King of Jerusalem had passed to his son, who became Baldwin III. Baldwin, however, was still a teenager and overshadowed by his mother, Melisenda. The debate was long, and although various ideas were proposed, the most powerful noblemen of Jerusalem urged an attack upon Damascus. This decision is often sharply criticised by historians. W. B. Bartlett writes in his book, Islam's War Against the Crusades, quote, As an example of folly, it is hard to find anything worse in the entire history of the crusading movement. It showed a strategic naivety of staggering proportions to alienate the one prominent Muslim leader who was allied to the Franks. In the process they would force Unar to seek the help of Nur al-Din, the only man strong enough to resist the Frankish armies. End quote. This was once the common view, but is now challenged. According to Thomas Ashbridge, Zengi's death had reshaped the balance of power in Muslim Syria. Quote, Once Jerusalem's docile pawn against Aleppo, by 1148 Damascus had become a far more threatening and aggressive neighbour. As such, the city's seizure might transform Uchumer's prospects for long-term survival. End quote. The Crusaders most likely believed that Damascus was a more achievable target, since Nur al-Din was clearly the more powerful of the two main Muslim powers. The other potential option was to attack the Fatimid Caliphs, who were in decline, but perhaps an attack on Cairo was considered too ambitious and too far from the Crusades' original purpose. The size of the combined army of Jerusalem and the Crusaders was said to be 50,000 men. 
Whatever the true number, this was a formidable army, which needed substantial supplies of food and water. Meanwhile, Anur did his best to prepare Damascus for the oncoming attack. Strengthening defences and dispatching requests for help to his Muslim neighbours. On the 24th of July, the Franks approached through dense orchards southwest of Damascus. Enclosed by low mud walls and only traversable via narrow lanes, they had long served as the first natural line of defence. The chronicler William of Tyre described the Muslim skirmishing aimed to halt the Latin advance. Quote, the cavalry force of the townsmen and those who had come to their assistance realised that our army was coming to the orchards in order to besiege the city, and they accordingly approached the stream which flowed by the town. This they did with their bows so that they could fight off the Latin army. End quote. In contrast to the likes of Antioch and Jerusalem, Damascus possessed no great circling fortifications. Protected at most by a low outer wall and the crowded jumble of his outlying suburbs, it appeared quite vulnerable. The Muslim chronicler Abu Shama wrote how on the 25th of July, on the first full day of the assault, that the Crusaders, quote, came close to the city and established themselves on a position which in every period, ancient or recent, no besieging army had taken. End quote. For certain there was widespread and heavy fighting, with both sides suffering significant losses. The Muslims engaged in guerrilla warfare around the Crusaders' positions, using their superior local knowledge to pick off isolated small groups. Nevertheless, the Crusaders' morale remained high. For the next two days, however, no more significant progress appeared to be made, and small groups of Muslim reinforcements were arriving from the surrounding region to help defend the city. Anur sent a message to Crusaders, warning them of the imminent arrival of a relief army under Nur al-Din. This appeared to panic the Christians, who decided to move the main area of attack to the east of the city. However, realising that this side was just as strongly defended, their nerves broke, and on either the 28th or 29th of July, the siege was abandoned. The Crusaders hurriedly returned in the direction they had come from. According to Abu Shama, quote, As soon as it was known that they were retreating, the Muslims hurried to pursue them, harassing them with arrows and killing a great number. End quote. Back in Jerusalem, Conrad and Louis discussed plans to launch a second, better-equipped assault against Damascus, or a possible campaign to capture the Fatimid-controlled port of Ascalon. But in the end, no action was taken, and both kings returned home. The Second Crusade had ended in abject failure. After such grand preparations, the Christians' plan had achieved nothing. Even worse, the very concept of a holy war was now brought into question. In fact, the Second Crusade had probably achieved more harm than good. Before long, 
Anur of Damascus reopened diplomatic channels with Jerusalem. But the local population's feelings had turned so hostile that any alliance was unviable. Instead, Anur's position was weakened and he was compelled to accept an increasingly subservient relationship with Nur al-Din, who was now in the ascendancy. The Byzantines also lost out from the crusade. Not only had the arrival of Westerners destructed the empire from its own struggles, but they now received much of the blame for the crusade's failure. The chaplain of the King of France, Odo of Duil, wrote a first-hand account of the expedition, which, like the Gesta Francorum before it, is characterised by its virulent anti-Byzantine bias. Searching for anyone to blame but themselves, some of the Second Crusaders also blame the Latin settlers in the Holy Land. The debacle of the Second Crusade highlighted differing objectives between newcomers arriving from the West and those who had made their home in the East. Local barons, conscious of the truce they had made with Unar, had always been more reluctant to target Damascus. Louis, an exceptionally pious but not very worldly wise ruler, struggled to understand the nature of the diplomacy between the Franks and the local Muslims. While the Muslim world was on the way to becoming united, the Christian factions seemed unable to trust each other sufficiently to work together. These divisions would end up costing them dear. I hope you can join me next week for the continuing story of the Crusader States and the build-up to the Battle of Hattin. Until then, farewell. 